Welcome to Innovate at Open, the podcast that explores open source through the lenses of distributed collaboration, collective invention, and technology creation. I'm your host, Gordon Half, technology evangelist with Red Hat. Hi, everyone. This is Gordon Half with another episode of the Innovate at Open podcast. I'm here at Fosdam in the sound conditions in some of these buildings are not the best, so forgive me if these are not the very best acoustics ever, but I have great guests here, fresh off the legal and policy dev room at FOSDEM yesterday, where Lewis uh, may have said some things he didn't actually believe in the debate format, so we're going to get the real scoop here. Um, Lewis, introduce yourself. So, uh, hi, my name is Louis Villa. I'm the co-founder of Tidelift, which is a company devoted making, to making open source better for everybody, both developers and enterprises. In prior lives, I've been at Mozilla, at Wikimedia. I was a member of the Open Source Initiative Board, and uh, so I've been doing open source for almost 20 years now. We were just chatting a little bit here, and you said something to the effect of, we seem to be having something of a moment around the open source licensing, I don't know, ethos, understanding, whatever. What did you mean by that? When we defined a lot of these key things like the open source definition, you could almost fit all of the open source developers in the world in a, in a large football stadium, right? What I've been saying this week uh, is that we define a lot of these rules when there are 100,000 of us, and we're now closer to 100 million open developers than 100,000. And so how does that change how we think of things, right? We were in a position of scarcity when we wrote a lot of these rules. Now we're not. We were in a position of weakness when we wrote a lot of these rules, and now we're very much not. We are the industry. And so that means, I think, that some of these... Uh, both strengths and obviously weaknesses of the modern software industry are very much that we can't avoid them anymore. We used to say, oh, we're not the industry. We used to, you know, oh, we're the rebellious upstarts. We're not the rebellious upstarts anymore. And in some sense, that's amazing. But in another sense, I think a lot of people are starting to question, like, wait, what power do we have? How do we wield it? Because certainly to date, we have not, we have not wielded it. I suppose one argument goes that open source software, really software more generally, is a tool, and it's very difficult to control the ethical context in which tools are used, and perhaps we shouldn't even try and should try to influence company, government behaviors in other ways. What's your response to that? Well, I have two responses to that. One is uh, professional and one is personal. So with my professional hat on at Tidelift, we believe that part of what has made open source so successful is the lack of friction. And so we are trying to build on that lack of friction by making even open source even more robust, right? So our part of our story as a company is that we believe that one of the current frictions in open source is that many maintainers are overworked, undersupported, and burnt out. And so we think that we can reduce friction by paying those maintainers so that they work uh, better and more happily and in the long run produce better software and lower friction, right? Imagine the average open source project goes for about three years before it's abandoned. 
Imagine if we could double that time to six years or triple that time to nine years. How much better return on investment would we get, right? And so I should really stress here that my company's vision is of an open source that is lower friction. My personal sense of what is going on right now is that, as you say, these things are hard to control, right? And they're hard to control partially because the law doesn't give us great tools for it, partially because it's software, it's slippery, it goes, once it's on the internet, it's really hard to put, you know, to, uh, as the American saying, you know, put that horse back in the barn. And of course, it's hard to control because a lot of people don't want it to be controlled, right? Which is, again, a two-edged sword. So it's entirely possible that this moment that we're having that you, you mentioned in the first question, that what we'll find is that a lot of people want to control for very good reasons. They're going to experiment with how to control. And those experiments are probably going to mostly fail because this is a hard, uh, even with the best of intentions, even with the best of legal advice, uh, because I guess I should have mentioned in my introduction that I am a former programmer now turned lawyer. So I do tend to think about these things in very sy systemic ways. And this is going to be a hard system to change. And so I suspect the probability is that like most human experiments, it'll fail. But at the same time, I think it will be interesting to, I think, I think it will be interesting to see how that experiment goes. We in this community tend to be sort of much more steeped in the philosophy and some of the history and the details of free software and open source. And we could talk about the differences between those for the next hour as well. However, it's interesting that I forget whether it was you or someone else asked yesterday in the legal and policy dev room who can recite basically the four freedoms and not an awful lot of hands went up. You know, some of us are kind of like, well, we could kind of get the gist, but we certainly couldn't recite them. I want to ask you another question, but maybe very quickly for the listeners here, who is with your even broader audience, what, from your perspective, is the Reader's Digest summary of the four freedoms and the open source definition that, we, that are sort of at the center of this debate? Well, if I can take that a little more broadly, first thing is that if your readers, if your listeners <laughs> um, don't know what, uh, what those are, your readers are an excellent company. Listen, readers, uh, I, I'm, I'm a text guy. Um, you're, any of you out there listening to this and going, I don't know what the four freedoms are. Um, guess what? 99.9% .9 of open source developers don't either. So I think the nutshell version is that um, the four freedoms are about the ability to use, modify, and redistribute software, right? So that you as you have the source code and means you can change them. I think what this definition misses in the current day is collaboration, right? Now these, the ability, obviously it's pretty hard to collaborate if you can't modify and redistribute. But to me, I think most of the open source developers I talk to, for them, open source is really about the ability to collaborate with others around software and the licensing is an implementation detail, right? The ability to modify and redistribute are valuable because of the collaboration and not in and of themselves. And I think that's a mistake. Not a mistake. It was understandable at the time that these were written. Um, but I think in the modern super collaboration centric world, 
uh, it's pretty understandable why people think of open source as this thing that people do together. And the licensing is a, is, is a, is a good thing to have, but it's not really the most important thing. Yeah, I think arguably the fact that collaboration was not really that much part of, of the sort of original thinking around open source software, I would argue has led to some of the perhaps less fruitful debates of today insofar as the important thing is I call my, can call my software open source even if I'm effectively excluding other people from working on it. Well, you know, again, I get back to this idea that there's 100,000, there used to be 100,000 of us, and now there's 100 million of us. I do wonder if in the near future we're going to wake up one day and realize, you know what, <laughs> if I exclude 95% of the people on GitHub, I still have uh, more potential developers than existed in the whole world in 2000, right? That's going to be an interesting, you know, I don't want to exclude, don't get me wrong, I don't want to exclude 95% of the people on GitHub. I think that would be a, uh, you know, for most purposes, a pretty terrible outcome. But um, at the same time, I think we're going to see a lot of experimentation. Lewis, uh, earlier on, uh, you mentioned this idea of experiments, most of which you think are going to fail. What are some experimental directions you think might be fruitful, and more some directions that you, from your perspective, are just non-starters? Well, you know, as important context, I think it's important for all of us to remember that the GNU General Public License, the GPL, that we all take for granted was, in fact, an experiment, right? And we all now, of course, think of it as this sort of this rock that we build all of open source on. But uh, once upon a time, lots of lawyers believed it wasn't enforceable. Lots of people believed it was communist. Um, and so it's it's always important to remember that the things we take for granted now were once experiments. And, and so I think we should try to be open to what we're what we're going to see in the next few years there's of course a whole bunch of experimentation right now around ethical licensing there's an ethical license definition there's um the hippocratic license which is one interesting uh license that attempts to reference the uh un declaration on human rights as a touchstone on what companies or users of open source should do i am personally most interested as a relatively new parent um, about experiments around carbon extraction, right? The oil giants use Linux extensively, you know, and they, and they use it to extract carbon from the ground and eventually pump it into the atmosphere. And so I have, uh, you know, a personal interest in seeing those experiments. There are at least two licenses uh, aimed at targeting that that I am following. There's a whole interesting literature around... Uh, divestment and whether uh, companies should stop investing in oil companies. And part of the literature is essentially to say, you know what, the oil companies don't care if you divest. <laughs> and, um, and I think we're going to see some interesting debates and discussions around software like this that, you know, I mentioned the oil companies use the Linux, use the Linux kernel. Well, guess what? We're not going to relicense the Linux kernel. So if these experiments are you know, perhaps somebody will write a great license that that addresses this problem. Okay, but if it's a license that is a tree that falls in a forest and nobody's there to hear it, right? If it's a license that gets applied to software that nobody uses, does it really have an impact? And I think, you know, 
uh, we'll, we'll see some things like that and perhaps some of them will get traction because certainly a lot of developers do care about uh, climate issues. We'll see. Well, thanks, Louis. Anything else you'd like to add from FOSDEM? No, you know, other than to say that FOSDEM is always just so reinvigorating because it is the human face of the movement. And uh, it's not big. It's not, well, it's huge, but it's not corporate. Uh, it's, it's so reassuring to touch points with the people who power this whole thing. And, and because it's people, some of them are going to have these concerns. And so I think we need to, we need to grapple honestly with that in, in coming years. And I think it's going to be both challenging, but also a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Innovate at Open. For future episodes, subscribe to Innovate at Open on your favorite podcast app. You could also go bitmason, B-I-T-M-A-S-O-N, dot blogspot.com for show notes, blogs, and a full archive of episodes and more. Thank you for listening. This is Gordon Half, Technology Evangelist at Red Hat.